There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the Belgian architect Freik Pearson, who is professor of architecture and urban transformation at ETH in Zurich, and together with Johan Anris and Peter Swinnen, founded the practice 51N4E in 1998. 51N4E work within an expanded definition of architecture, engaging with infrastructure, socioeconomics, and environmentalism in equal measure, describing each of their projects as vectors of urban and social transformation. They work extensively with existing buildings and infrastructure, identifying, for example, the possible futures of underused viaducts, abandoned mines, and derelict office blocks, to name just a few. Sometimes they even embed themselves within the context they're designing for. In a project called ZIN, which involves the adaptive reuse of an existing 1970s office tower in Brussels' business district, 51N4E set up a studio inside the tower, involving a wide cast of groups to explore new ways to inhabit the old building, often to surprising effect. Picture a corporate boardroom full of cacti, or musical performances taking place at the bottom of the lobby escalators or an educational exhibition set up among the tower's bare columns and stripped-back surfaces. The kind of work that 51N4E do suggests an evolving definition of the architect, less as a singular author with isolated expertise, and more as a kind of mediator drawing out new relationships between a range of different kinds of practices and people. All this points to a change in the culture of architecture and urban design, which, as Frick describes it, is a change from a market-driven discipline to one that centers around the messy vitality of life. It's an aspiration that drives Frick's practice and teaching, and has been met with both profound enthusiasm and some degree of skepticism. We touch on this and much more in our conversation, which was recorded in May of 2022 over Zoom. Frick was in Belgium, and I was in London. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. One of 51N4E's earliest projects was a scheme that involved the design of an allotment infrastructure. Housing was part of the scheme, but was secondary and more standardized, whereas more of 51N4E's energy was focused on the allotments themselves. And you mentioned in another interview that it was something that you'd done naively and intuitively, and it was met with a lot of opposition from fellow architects. You also mentioned that it taught you to trust your intuition. And I just wanted to ask how, how it taught you that, and why you think there was this opposition from other architects to this kind of project. Actually, at the the time I was uh, reading a text by a a Flemish writer, actually um, a woman who was was a philosopher, and um, um, she had written a text about... um, living and what it means to live somewhere and it was she was somehow describing in a text that a very good house is the place where you in a way forget what you see so and it was somehow the exact opposite of what you are learned in school so to always be aware and to to be to really know what you see and to be very conscious of it and in her text she was she was saying that uh, uh, yeah, it's in Dutch, so it's a bit of difficult to translate, but a house is a place to forget somehow. Um, and this contradiction spoke to me a lot, um, and also to Johan, I remember. Um, and it somehow felt very familiar with the experience that you have yourself. Um, that if you live in a place, 
you somehow it grows on you and you it becomes a pattern almost of your life rather than this kind of very conscious environment and um and in this idea of patterns or how things relate to each other and what you're connected to i always felt very strongly um that the way how you enter your house or how you con- are connected to the street or what is somehow bigger than your house plays a very big role in how you perceive your environment or are that you become part of something and i think it's that type of intuition that i was talking about that this is you somehow learn to look at uh, architecture as an object when you're in school well if you live your daily life at least i am much more what i'm what i become aware of or what i don't forget is how things relate to each other how you go from one thing to another and and i think it's that type of intuition that i was referring to when i was talking in that interview that you 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 make reference to and um yeah somehow it felt very natural to more think about the shared infrastructure of an allotment rather than to make a very specific house i mean the reason i started with that question is because to me it seems to exemplify a certain kind of attitude that the practice was cultivating early on that has been more recently articulated as a process of environment making so instead of architecture being thought of as merely designing buildings you're trying to reframe an understanding of architecture as a process of making environments and understanding the relationships that unfold in environments so there's to me a very coherent connection you could draw between this early project this allotment project and the kind of ideas that you're now developing around how to reconsider what architecture is so with that in mind i want to bring us right up to the present talking about this process you've embarked on entering academia and starting to articulate this new definition of the practice through your chair at ETH so when you started teaching at ETH in 2019 the first thing you did was to change the name of the professorship instead of architecture and urban design you called it architecture and urban transformation and i just wonder if you could tell me more about why that change in title was so critical for you i think it's um critical in the sense that um thinking about design often entails this image of focusing on what you would like to have in the future and somehow creating the conditions for yourself to draw and imagine that quite freely um and to think big rather than small and to think changing a lot rather than changing a little and it's actually a challenge to create conditions where you limit yourself um because to think in abstractions with a drawing or with a 3D model is actually very easy um i mean it's very easy to think of very different things um but it's actually rather difficult to focus on things that are there and to value them and to understand how they could change even if they remain the same um so this whole idea of transformation and to reinterpret things and to make to use them differently or to give them a new meaning for me it's almost more intriguing and also more powerful and for sure also more urgent than to think of um, many new things um so our move for instance to the north district um and to live in that move to those buildings that are there and to witness them has even strengthened that insight that if you're not part of a place it's so easy to imagine to change it radically well if you're become part of it you start to think and yeah see in a different resolution and it's true that by promoting that or by focusing on it people tend to pigeonhole me in into a box where um i would not be interested anymore in more abstract or more bigger gestures which is not at all the case but it's it's more that you have such a wide array of 
possibilities at your disposal and we only use so limited um, of that array. Um, I just want to clarify what you mean when you say the North District for listeners that might not be familiar. This is a business district in Brussels where your office is based and where 51N4E temporarily inhabited a derelict office tower that it was in the process of redesigning with a large cast of collaborators. So 51N4E were, in a sense, kind of squatting in this old office tower as they were imagining possible futures for it. And they were kind of performing those possible futures through their own occupation. And there's some really evocative images of these corporate interior spaces that are filled with plant life in a way that's quite dissonant and surprising, or filled with all kinds of communal activities of eating and lectures and performances and other public events. Again, in a way that jars with the context of the office scape, it's really this idea of learning more directly through occupation and through participation. In a sense, you're understanding the architect as a kind of mediator. And I just wonder how you start to manage the complexity of that in situations where you're moving beyond designing merely objects and understanding instead how to orchestrate a complex set of social systems. Yeah, it's it somehow starts by acknowledging that you're somehow flawed and that you can only do so much. So in this kind of overwhelming complexity, I think it, it helps to start with the fact that you can do a contribution, but it will never be enough. And if you accept that, you can start to open up to what other people can do and start to find ways of addressing these complexities together. And this goes indeed with clients or users, but it also goes with, even with the people in the office. What we try to do indeed is in the office is to try to make sense of our action or to try and invent what action would make sense at a given moment in time. And sometimes it can indeed be um, designing an object, but many times it's it's very counterproductive to do that. Um, and so we try to somehow work in this double movement of becoming highly aware of what you can do and to position people as much as possible really in their full autonomy and in their full presence in, um, in, a, in a process or in a project. Um, but at the same time, that awareness of oneself is connected to an awareness of the limits and how you can um, hand over. And that's how we organize the office, that this handover is almost a bit pre-structured um, so that you have already figured out by past experience when it's better to, even like in these examples of good cop, bad cop, or in somehow the ones that ask the questions, the one that delivers the answers. There's so many roles that you can play that can push something forward and that can help help situations that you also start to develop an understanding on how you can do that collaboratively and how you can do that as a group. And it's not about looking for consensus, but it's more like how you can start to use different perspectives and how you allow yourself to be challenged or how you allow yourself to be comforted. And Ideally, with, with, for instance, clients, we come to a situation where they are in that same position as well and where you can also sometimes help them articulate so you know how to draw or you know how to make a model, but they have sometimes more imagination than you have and you can almost be then like the midwife of those ideas. Um, and that's actually a very pleasant situation to be in because you're extremely helpful. Um, it really, it gives you the feeling that you have given something to someone. Um, so you have allowed them to grow or to become better than what they are. So it's like, um, so that's how we deal with this complexity by um, looking for these horizontal networks between people and how people can strengthen each other in multiple constellations. 
And I, li- I really like how you use the word learning because it's really about this. You learn together. And the learning is ideally also with all of your senses, not just with what you can think, but also with what you can feel. And, and yeah, with how you feel at that moment also. <laughs> I mean, you can also have a bad day. Or um, uh. I really enjoy this metaphor of the midwife which in a way I kind of, I privately think to myself, these kinds of conversations are also a form of, <laughs> in some way, midwifery, or even teaching to me is a kind of midwifing experience where mm. as a teacher or as an interviewer, your job really is to understand latent concepts or latent ideas and to kind of coax them out or facilitate their expression. Mm. Um, At the same time, though, and this goes back to that first question about the allotment project, um, I can understand how this this could make architects or some architects uncomfortable because what it does is it starts to diminish this idea of singular authorship and it starts to dissolve in a way this kind of cliched but entirely real depiction of the architect as an egotistical soul creator. (laughs) And I think culturally, we're probably just about finished with that (laughs) as an image of the architect. But at the same time, there is something to be said about the kind of control that a soul author can have on a work of architecture and the way that control can ultimately render a project of exceptional refinement and artistry mm. and conceptual coherence. Um, a kind of classical work of architecture we understand as being somehow an individual expression, I think, rightly or wrongly. So I'm just curious, maybe you could actually respond to something you brought up before we started recording. As another example of this, the Victoria Tower Uh, which is another adaptive reuse scheme by 51N4E, taking an old IBM headquarters in Brussels and converting it into accommodation and hotel. Some architects have criticized that or criticized you as a practice for somehow stepping away from your role as architects. Can you tell me more about those criticisms or that tension or the critique that you faced in that project? Mm-hmm. Well, it was um, in a lecture in Paris where two people from the office presented the project and the reaction came that to just literally remake that facade in a more high-performant high way. Um, like, what do you add or what do you bring? Or why wouldn't you change that um, facade? Um, um, so what, what, what did you contribute um, and um, well, I, I, I do think it's interesting to think of an architect as a change maker or a change agent. Um, but then you can really judge what kind of change is meaningful. And for instance, in the context of that project, almost to demonstrate that buildings could remain the same and only be adapted in the way how they touch the ground or adapted in the way how they are used, multiple uses in them, or how, like we lifted the facade with one story and made an open air rooftop um, floor. Um, But these are imperceptible changes, but they're not changes in the organism of the building. And in the context of a neighborhood that is, where buildings are treated as disposable, I would say it's a very strong act to say, no, we, we keep it like this and we, we built this legacy or we, we cherish that legacy. And almost to treat the 70s building as heritage is, is to a certain extent, it's almost controversial. Um, so, so the change that you're bringing by doing this is more in the perception of those buildings and what it means to perceive with what this act means in the perception of the neighborhood. So, so indeed, you, you somehow see it as part of a larger 
constellation of considerations. Um, so you're not just focusing on the building and what should it be, and so you, but you put it in a in a wider context. Um, and yeah, that, that's I think with every project we try to make that judgment of like what kind of change is meaningful because you in a way even if you keep something you it's also you're you're then also in a moment of considering what what to change and what not to change and I think we have always taken the liberty of deciding as much as we can to do to say yes as we can also say no to things. Um, the power to not do something is also strong, I think. I want to go back to Zen, which is what we were talking about before, the um, financial district in Brussels and the tower that the office 51 and 48 were based in for a couple of years. We were talking about how through situating the office and the, in the tower that you were designing the conversion of, you were actively learning about new potentials for these interiors, these formerly corporate interiors. And you also invited students to participate in lectures and exhibitions and symposia there, all organized under this umbrella of, quote, you are here, collaborating with various public and private partners. And you mentioned that this resulted in alliances and actions that redescribed the architectural profession to you. And I wondered if you could tell me more about how the experience of having the office inhabiting this tower helped you redescribe the profession, your profession. Mm -hmm. um, like almost all of the people that work in the office have been trained as architects. There's, there's a few exceptions. There's a sociologist or there's a landscape architect or um, etc. But so the, the main body of people practicing are trained as architects, but there are many who are actually not interested in the construction or the making of a building. Um, so there's also some who really are interested in that and who are also really good at it. Um, and so for me, it's not about choosing this or that, but more to have that diversity of possibilities and of different roles that you can take and how you can start to weave together those different... Um, yeah, we've been talking about change-making, but different ways to produce change. Um, and in the case of the North District, to produce change is almost to bring life to that neighborhood. Um, so it's a district, and it's notoriously like... Um, it's a nine-to-five um, environment. In a certain part of it, there's no people living in it. Um, so it's, it's quite harsh um, because at five, things stop and it's really quite literally abandoned. Um, and um, to move there, to move in there and to occupy those buildings beyond the regular office hours, also with a wide variety of people, it creates a shared experience and it somehow also produces a sense of we're in it together. Um, um, yeah, and so that has been... I, I, I was really struck by how much energy this has been releasing um, and both positive reactions and negative reactions. And I find it very striking that, for instance, people who were, were extremely negative about what we did they were still raising their voice and still having a, finding a platform to do that. It's interesting too that it seems like, maybe I'm wrong on the, the timeline here, but it seems like 51 and 4E during this period also started to reconsider its own internal structure. And at some point, it sounds like it splintered off into three separate studios, which are in a way interlinked and still equal 51 and 4E, but are defined individually as act, cast, and root. Could you tell me more about these three studios, what they mean, and why it was important for you to 
as an office kind of restructure um, the organization in this way. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a, a reflection on an organization that started before. Um, you could even say that the audacity, even if that's maybe too much of a word, but the audacity to move with a group of 40, 50 people to a temporary occupation for a year and a half, that was quite a big step. I mean, it's, it's also a big group. Um, I, think, I don't think we would have made that step if we wouldn't have thought about how we want to be structured. Um, um, and the structure that we have links to what I was explaining before about having domains of expertise that you can deepen and that you can almost own, that you're an owner of, and to, to combine that with expertises that you need in, on certain moments in time and so that you can navigate a project through different expertises. Um, but we noticed that being just one structure, this kind of very fluid process was working against us because people came with one question and we noticed that we had to expand it or we had to divert it in order to bring it back. And so all of this kind of dynamics, people were taking for granted that this was the work. And so we couldn't make clear that e even if it's necessary to divert and to step into other areas of interest and to activate other questions that are important, it doesn't mean that it's all just taking, had to be taken for granted and it's just for free, let's say. So um, it's also in that sense also a way to safeguard that process and to be able to create boundaries around things and to say, look, it's really necessary that something else is investigated here. But this is not a normal, uh, this is not a normal assignment. You have to realize that w what you're asking for is actually entailing this, this and that. And we can do the this, but the other this and the, and the that is, is like another assignment. And so it's also mm -hmm. to make, to, it creates better relationships with clients if you can be more clear about what the scope is and, um, and then they can still decide to widen the scope or not, but at least it becomes an explicit conversation. I mean, there's something incredibly experimental about the way the office is distributing or kind of redefining itself and partitioning its expertise to legitimate the kind of knowledge and um, kind of work that goes into uh, the projects that you undertake. And in a way, it's not at all mainstream. When we talk about adaptive reuse, or in other cases, collective ownership, these are really vulnerable approaches to making architecture. And you've written that it often heightens confrontation and conflict in addition to risk itself. And so I'm curious, how, how do you do it? <laughs> Like, I think, generally speaking, um, most practices would be more risk averse. So how do, you, how do you manage risk? How do you embrace confrontation in a way that still moves the project forward? Mm -hmm. well, it's a good question. And I think we always try to, like we're not heroes. Um, and it's not dependent on us alone um, so so we see it as a shared responsibility um, and so I think we by now also attract people who are interested in it intrigued by it who want to take this risk together um, and so and then it's also about assessing uh, together uh, what what um, what what is a feasible step somehow um, and of course, you're not always in, in conditions where you can discuss this openly with the people that you work with. Um, like with some clients, we're really partners with other clients. We're in a way more serv service providers and their structures are too complex to go into a real partnership. But then you try to understand how far they would be willing to go. And you also try to look for the best possible uh, rather than for the best. Um, so there concerns and their considerations become an, an important part of the judgment. Um, 
and and it but it's also true that we're often in situations where we become a bit a victim of trying to push the envelope um, and where we constantly have to crisis manage our way out of difficult situations and where somehow a client doesn't make the step into accepting that they're taking a risk as well um, so it's we're somehow trying to build those learning trajectories together and often it works but sometimes it doesn't and then you're indeed just stuck with it <laughs> and, uh, and you try to make the most out of it um, it also requires quite some time to reassess your position every now and then it's not that you can say like this is how it is and for the next three years we don't discuss it anymore it's like a internal self-evaluation but you also become good at it at self-evaluating and repositioning so in the beginning it takes quite some time to and it <laughs> has this kind of soul searching um, um, that people try to avoid I think but once you become good at it it also takes less time and you can just it becomes part of your process and we also learned it in Albania where because it's a remote country like it's um, it's not so far from Belgium but still it requires travel and there's people who work there who are local that we collaborate with intensely and then there's people who go there once in a while they can somehow become part of that context but they're already a bit outside of it so they already have a bit more distance and then there's feedback rounds in Brussels where people are giving feedback almost like a bit ignorant of what's playing locally and to go through these circles of proximity and to be in and out and to work that movement of taking a distance and going closer that allows you to stay healthy in it it's a reflective ref, reflexive practice i think i'm glad you brought up albania it's something i wanted to ask you about so this is essentially where the practice grew up or took its first steps in tirana specifically in the development of skanderbeg square which is a kind of master plan for the city center. Mm -hmm. And the square in particular is a almost a surreal public space in the middle of the city. This kind of open hardscape with patches that flood and recede and a kind of buffer of planted, almost forested space around it. and preserves a lot of the historical buildings in the square as well. And really captures, in a way, the city as it's transforming from communism to almost a brutal form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if you could talk more about the process of developing that proposal and the kind of reflexive tests and studies at different distances, as you were just describing, that you undertook to arrive at this this final scheme. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's a, I wouldn't call Albania as a country that evolved towards brutal capitalism. It's maybe more brutal entrepreneurialism. Um, mm. So there's something very hands-on and very um, down-to-earth about their interpretation of free market so it doesn't have at all what I associate with capitalism, which is about, let's say, decontextualizing value and somehow making it part of this kind of global circle of, um, of footloose money streams that never land anywhere and decisions are totally alienated from places. So in that sense, Albania is still very much a place and people that work there, even if you have that kind of similar dynamics as what you have what you see for instance in Russia where some people were lucky at a certain moment in time being very well positioned in a moment of transition and suddenly being more rich than they could imagine um, so it has that kind of um, brutality I think but at the same time it's also a condition like a quite ancient uh, society I would almost call it where people know each other where there's bonds of trust um, where you're also in a way caught in those bonds of trust because um, it's really kind of personal um, 
Um, so in that sense, it's very different from capitalist society where everything becomes very impersonal. Uh, and I think that's why we were able to work there, because somehow personal, like very, people know you and um, um, and you can also get to know people and you can somehow take an engagement and stand for it. Um, which is, I think, often made impossible. Um, like, I'm not so sure if we could work in... I don't know the UK, but I have the feeling that it's much more financialized than Belgium or Albania. Um, also in Germany, for instance. Um, things are much more part of larger organizations, whereas a young practice, you even cannot begin thinking of becoming a part of it. Um, so I think the success of the practice is also to a certain extent related to maybe these outdated conditions that we work in. I mean, it's maybe not the, not the most contemporary conditions uh, if you look at it at a global scale. It's maybe more the exceptions. So how then did this, this form of public space emerge, which I think was proposed in, in contrast to a much more conventional kind of city square that had been originally planned for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, it's true. Yeah, so um, so the scheme that was made, the master plan scheme was somehow trying to pacify the square by making it smaller, by hiding the communist monuments. Um, so somehow all of the things that we found intriguing were suddenly gone. And so we somehow were triggered to counter-propose something and we ha didn't have anything to lose. So, And it was also a competition that allowed for that type of positioning because it was much more stating a challenge than it was listing requirements. And so the thing that we were doing to somehow reassess the situation that was actually what the brief was asking for and was giving the space for. So they were not asking for 20 benches, um, x square meters of playgrounds. Um, so lots of competitions are just already boring to start with. Um, somehow pre-chewed in such a way that it's only about solutions. And here it was really about making, taking a position. And so that's also what the design does very clearly. It's, it makes a few moves, it reorganizes space. In that sense, creates a new framework for discussion that could be had. In that framework, there's still lots of changes possible. Also, these changes have happened. Um, so there's a lot of room to negotiate, but you somehow your design creates the room for negotiation. Um, and that's extremely interesting. Um, I don't think we would have, and we've learned a lot from that. Um, um, I think we started also designing like that more, where the kind of authorship that you were talking about is to create a new condition, and these conditions are somehow the new context or the new boundary object that frames the discussion. So it's not about trying to figure out what people want only, but also saying, like, this is, this is let's discuss about this. We'll listen to you, but... We're not just listening to your concerns, but let's also discuss what's on the table now. Yeah. I want to understand more about how this actually played out in terms of design. What you're effectively describing, to me, it sounds a lot like what um, Dominique Boudet described as the program BIS, this kind of program under or next to the brief that the architects install themselves. And in a way... What I want to know more about is how you set out to define that other program beyond what was originally prescribed. I want to know more about what role drawing played in that process of developing this kind of counter or other program for the square. Well, the, the square was actually a very short competition. Um, so in that... In that short amount of time, we somehow worked intensely to make a proposal. Um, so we proposed something, and that proposal was 
in a way, creating new conditions. Um, we were saying this is what we find important and this is something you could dream about. Um, this is something that you could really want. Um, and then it was quite rudimentary, quite s simple. And gradually it became more complex. It started to absorb questions. It's, it's somehow all of the things that were unresolved gradually got resolved and got integrated and got revealed by working on it. Um, and then I think what was very helpful in retrospect was that the project was stagnated, was on hold for five years. Um, and it's somehow the fact that it could be restarted gave it the time to mature. Um, also, I think suddenly there were conditions where the local government and the national government were aligned politically. So suddenly a lot of the obstacles we were facing before, which had to be dealt with on a national level, were becoming obstacles. And then suddenly these obstacles were worked through and were decided upon. Um, so it's really like um, setting a new frame and then somehow all of the constraints and all of the things that are unforeseen or that pop up, you slowly integrate them. Um, and yeah, so it's about, it's also a lot about discussions and capturing reactions and capturing opportunities and integrating those opportunities. There have been negotiations with every building and every organization around the square. So in that sense, it's a public space project, but indeed also an urban transformation project, where also with that initial investment, other investments are triggered. Um, um, and I think the Prime Minister, Eddie Rama, has this kind of... Um, has the capacity to create a sense of pride around it. People feel that it's important to do this. And, and of course it helped that it was a central square because people took it, felt self-represented. Everyone was concerned somehow, felt concerned. I think as a way of closing, I just want to end on this question of or this subject of design and dialogue, which is a focus of your teaching now at ETH. And I wondered if, if you could help me understand precisely what that means, design and dialogue, and how, how you aim to, I guess, establish a new curriculum with this idea of design and dialogue at its center. Because I, I was looking through the website for your teaching chair, which is called Europe, a kind of contraction of new in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, which I understand is slightly adjacent to the design and dialogue concept, which in a way is a methodology, a more broad way of operating mm -hmm. that you're trying to implement at the school. And looking through the website, I felt like I was having trouble. <laughs> You're smiling and nodding, mm -hmm. um, and I'm gesticulating wildly. I I had trouble understanding, really, what it is. And I think I've read through the the pamphlet by Ruby Press or the magazine or document that was published by Ruby Press called Design and Dialogue, which in a way is a kind of manifesto for this methodology that stakes out this new position for the architect, a position that we've been, I think, trying to articulate through the conversation we've been having. Um, and I think because, maybe because in a way it's novel and because it's about the organization of different kinds of systems and different forms of knowledge and expertise, I'm conscious that I speak about it in abstraction, mostly. And it's very hard to find a kind of tangible or concrete um, representation of it. And so on the one hand, I feel really excited by the rhetoric and by the suggested shift 
an attitude or approach to design, if it's framed as a kind of dialogue. But I wondered if you could help me understand exactly what it means to design in dialogue and why for you as a teacher, it's so important to bring this new methodology into a school of architecture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, first of all, I understand why the website is confusing because I think it's, we meant it to work in a certain way, but it's somehow half there. And um, so it's, I, I understand why it's confusing because it's half, I think. I hope the book is less confusing. Um, and the book somehow tries to combine or somehow to talk about this design and dialogue in different ways as kind of through concrete examples, very tangible, but also um, in its more abstract terms and more conceptual. So I think the insert with the yellow pages is quite conceptual. And well, the examples in the book are um, actually very recognizable, I would say. And to a certain extent, they're not novel at all. Um, so it's maybe more the fact that they're talked about like this and that some practices are revealed to do this while they never choose to reveal themselves like this. That's already a big part of the claim, I think, that we want to make is that, um, for instance, that the distinction between design and participation is a false one um, um, and also that um, the role of let's say material practice and the role of um, process-oriented practice that these two can very much be combined it's very interesting to combine them um, and this is in a way what we're doing and so to a certain extent it's about safeguarding what we do, but also I think, and that's why I need the school to both articulate it better so that it is talked about in a certain way and in that sense also recognized in a certain way. But then to do that also to experiment with it more in the school and to somehow create conditions which are less confined by um, financial and commercial concerns. Um, and to set up specific uh, tests to develop it. And it's true that it's difficult to talk about because it's very much an experience also. Um, it's a personal experience. Um, I mean, that's what I noticed, that a lot of the information or matter, kind of accumulated matter around the Design and Dialogue project has to do with the construction of venues and the production of events. But... I had trouble, I think, locating the student work or the outputs that were generated from that. And in a way, because these are events that happen in time, there's a transience to them that I can imagine is difficult to, to capture or represent. Yeah, and this transience is, that's already quite striking that architecture is not talked about in those terms. It's very much focusing always on the final product and then this final product is even in magazines is captured before it's used and so it's I would almost say it's trying to monumentalize or eternalize this kind of one fragment of time that almost doesn't exist which is the finished building before it's in use um, I don't know if you ever <laughs> tried to uh, photograph a building at that moment in time but logistically that's already quite challenging um, so I would say we're almost talking indeed about this whole thing, uh, this whole process uh, and valuing every moment of it and somehow also becoming aware, becoming aware of the value of every moment. Um, so I will, I will take it up as a challenge to um, maybe try to clarify on the website more what it is and to the, the challenge of making this very concrete thing also concretely accessible is indeed, I've noticed that tension as well and that contradiction. Scaffold is a project from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts 
and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Frank Pearson. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.